Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host of the channel, Adam McNeil. On today's podcast, I interview historian Dr. John Garrison Marks about his brand new book, Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery, Race, Status, and Identity in the Urban Americas. During my discussion with Dr. Marks, we chop it up about comparative slavery and freedom between Cartagena and Charleston, writing processes, moving from dissertation to book manuscript, hashtag Twitter historians, and all things social media, public history, and much, much more. I hope y'all enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Marks. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. It's definitely a pleasure to have you on to discuss your amazing new book, Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery, Race, Status, and Identity in the Urban Americas. And so to start our interview off today, where did the idea for Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery actually come from? Yeah, so the idea first really started to develop for me while I was doing my coursework in the first couple of years of graduate school. Uh, so at the start of grad school, I already had ideas about working on some kind of topic related to black freedom. Um, I early on published an article about the free black experience in Texas, and I knew I wanted to go somewhere and sort of in that vein. Um, and then as an, as an undergrad, I also studied abroad in Latin America and majored in Spanish. So when I got to grad school, I took up Latin American history as my, as my third field. And I started reading more widely in that area, but really came to Latin American history as from the perspective of an Americanist. Um, and so when it, when it comes to comparative history, I'm, I guess I'm sort of a, an, uh, an outlier a little bit as someone who did the U.S. first and then started looking at Latin America rather than the other way around. Uh, but it was really getting deeper into the historiography on colonial Latin America as an Americanist that really started to get my wheels turning. You know, I, I started reading about the experience of urban slavery and black freedom in places like Brazil and Cuba and colonial San Domingue and other places in Latin America. 
Uh, and the kinds of things that historians were talking about for those places, uh, African descended people carving out spaces of autonomy, slave hiring, self-purchase, uh, black people working as artisans, sort of on down the line. Those were all things that I recognized from reading recent scholarship about race and slavery in the U.S. and the U.S. South specifically. Uh, but for the most part, the historians of Latin America that I was reading weren't making that connection. And historians of the U.S. by and large weren't talking about the connections to Latin America. Um, the books about most of the books about Latin America, when they referenced the U.S. case, they were usually referencing this much older scholarship that basically said uh, that, you know, because white people thought of free blacks sort of as slaves without masters, that that's what the lived experience was like, even though I knew that what was happening in the most recent scholarship was pushing back against that in really interesting ways. Um, and so when uh, I started when I started reading this and putting these pieces together, it really got me thinking about what a comparative project would look like. And if I could write about race from this transnational perspective in a way that uh, spoke to the sort of complicated and I think really interesting things uh, that I saw that I saw happening and the parallels between the lived experience of racial difference. Um, you know, I think despite the promise of Atlantic world history, it turns out there really aren't that many projects that are explicitly comparative in nature when it comes to talking about race and slavery, um, and certainly not that many that draw comparisons across national and imperial and cultural and linguistic boundaries, right? The Atlantic world is often the North Atlantic or just the British Atlantic. Um, so I realized in, in sort of think, starting to think about it and reading about it that I had a chance to, to do a cool project, one that could uh, kind of jettison some of the conventional thinking about what was the same and what was different when it came to race in the Americas. And once I start, started going down that path, there was kind of no going back for me. And that landed you here on New Books in African American Studies. And so uh, that's, a, that's a great place to be, you know, shameless plug there. Um, and so <laughs> for sure, for sure. And so you know, a phenomenal uh, synopsis for sure, because, you know, it's for, for our listeners here, we're always interested to know how scholars get to their uh, tr tremendous ideas for, for their book projects. And so, you know, one of the other parts uh, that I always love to ask my favorite scholars about, you know, you're, you're part of that uh, cohort now, shout out to you. Um, can, can you describe the intellectual community and or communities that help to shepherd the, the book project along? Yeah, this is a, a really interesting question for me because the the kinds of community and support that I had really changed so much over the course of the project. You know, I, I've been working uh, on this project in some way, shape, or form for basically the last eight years. Uh, so I started working on it as a dissertation at Rice University, um, and I really cannot say enough about the community of people at Rice. Um, my colleagues there in the department, uh, the, all the faculty that I had the opportunity to work with there uh, were really some of the kindest, you know, most generous, most fun people that I've, I've ever gotten to know. Um, I really loved Houston. I loved graduate school for the most part. Um, and I think Rice had a, an uncommonly supportive and collegial environment among its graduate students. Um, and that's definitely an environment that that really helped me do my best work and to um, to build the project into you know into what it was. Um, but when it came to came time to do my book revisions, I was basically on an island. Um, you know, I wasn't working in an academic job, so I didn't wasn't around people that I could just bounce ideas off 
bounce ideas off of all the time. Um, no one else around me that was was working on a book project, things like that. Um, so connecting people virtu with people virtually became a really important part of my intellectual community, whether it was people through Twitter or otherwise virtually. Um, you know, I had I had a chance to, um, you know, I, I really valued having that chance to, to talk to other scholars that I wasn't in a department with or that weren't, you know, sort of part of my same cohort. Um, you know, I'm I'm really glad that I didn't try to write this book 15 years ago because it would have been much harder to do, especially as I got as I got to the late stages. Um, and I also tried as much as I could to create a new community for myself. Um, so I, after finishing grad school, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee, and took a job in public history. Um, but I'm I'm hugely grateful to Jane Landers and Celso Castillo in the Department of History at Vanderbilt uh, for kind of taking me in um, here as a as an independent scholar, uh, if you will, um, letting me come to works in progress seminars, helping me get library access, um, and really treating me like a member of their department, which was which was huge for me because. Let me tell you that making book revisions uh, without access to a university library is very hard. I, I, I don't recommend it. That's uh, a sort of a different conversation. Um, but there's really just too many people to, to mention that have, that have really helped me along the way as I, was, as I was putting in the work on this book over the last few years. See, these are the kinds of conversations that I always love hearing about, you know, either at conferences or, you know, at these different um what would used to have been in a in a pre-COVID world, uh, you know, conference, you know, seminars or you know these things about book publishing, but you know, we we got to remix it as as many of the people in your book had to do in their particular lives and their situations, and so, um, you know, learning about your um, the the communities that help to foster your work, you know, digitally, you know, through um, as I noticed in your acknowledgments hashtag. Uh, uh, Twitter historians up in the house, um, mm -hmm. and, and then also, you know, folks like uh, Dr. Landers, and as a, as a native Floridian, um, her work is is so important to me. Even before I knew I wanted to be a historian back at Florida and M University, shouts out to you, uh, Dr. Young. I know you're listening uh, back at Family's History Department. That was a book. Uh, her, her her book uh, on, um, uh, on on Spanish Florida um, was just you know so so iconic. Uh, for for me, and so it's it's great to hear um, about the the generosity that I've heard about experienced through your particular um, through your particular work as well. And this book is a uh, is a uh, an ode to that. So, uh, Dr. Landers, we appreciate you. New books, African Americans. Yeah, that you were saying one hundred percent, one hundred percent. I owe her a big debt. <laughs> well, I guess she's also writing that down too. So, uh, you know, all right, Dr. Landers. <laughs> and so, uh, so, um, so, so looking at, um, the particular, uh, places that you're, that you're focused on in your comparative study, why did you decide to focus on the urban Americas? Yeah, I, I knew that I wanted to tell this story about black freedom prior to the abolition of slavery. Because uh, that I felt like that story just offers such a unique perspective on how race operated in the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and the fact that freedom was often the exception rather than the rule in so many places, I just felt like made it really fertile ground for researching the lived experience of racial difference and, and the contours of daily life for African descended people in the Atlantic world. Um, and so knowing that I wanted to focus on black freedom, researching cities is, is and urban spaces is really where the action is. Uh, urban spaces were just really interesting to me because of the kinds of opportunities 
that they offered for people of African descent in this era, whether it was in, in North America, in South America, the Caribbean, or, or elsewhere. Um, I think the, the exigencies of, of the urban economy and of urban spaces meant that enslaved people had greater opportunities to, to carve out spaces of autonomy, autonomy for themselves, to earn money, uh, and sometimes to, to find their way to legal freedom. And because of that, you have these much larger populations of free black people in urban areas than you do in their rural hinterlands. And then aside from the people who were born free in cities or who gained their freedom in cities and decided to stay there, it's enslaved people who managed to escape freedom either legally or otherwise in plantation spaces or rural areas end up making their way to cities as well. So it felt like focusing on urban areas was really where uh, where all the action was, where my focus had to be for trying to tell a story about black freedom. Um, and then port cities in particular played this really crucial role in the Atlantic world economy during this era. Um, and that led to really fascinating arrangements when it came to race. So that was the other reason that I wanted to focus on port cities in particular. Um, especially in the North American context, you know, white authorities want African slavery to be the organizing model for social relations in, in all of society. But that really just falls apart in a lot of ways when, when you, we're, you're talking about the city. Um, the nature of work in urban spaces, uh, white people's willingness or unwillingness to engage in certain types of labor meant that it was often impossible to reconcile this adherence to an ideology of white supremacy on the one hand with the functioning of the urban economy on the other hand. Um, and so in cities, African descended people are able to find these sorts of opportunities that just weren't available in other kinds of spaces. Um, and through those opportunities, they're able to expose and take advantage of these little cracks in the foundation of white racial ideology to improve their lives and to prove the lives of their, their spouses, their children, and their loved ones. Um, and that's something that I saw just time and again happening as I was reading and researching the project and looking at what was happening in different urban spaces around the Americas. Uh, and it was something that I thought it was, was worth exploring in a book. And that was... And, and that's exactly like something that I was thinking about throughout reading your book was, you know, thinking about the the, the binary between rural and, and urban and kind of how that um, looks geographically different. Because, you know, like you're looking at Cartagena and Charleston where, you know, mountains function differently in, in one yeah. place as opposed to the other. You know, the low country is, you know, the word low is not, you know, by accident. Right. And so like looking at the ways of of how geography influences how freedom can be negotiated, I think is an interesting one. Oh, snap. I think I just might have uh, helped myself with my own uh, dissertation perspective. So you're definitely going in the <laughs> acknowledgements, Dr. Marks. Uh, uh, I think we're friends now. We were John. And so yeah, uh, thank works. you. <laughs> thank you. So uh, thank God this is being recorded. Um, and so that actually leads to my next question, actually. So what factors played in your decision to geographically focus on, on Cartagena and Charleston? Well, maybe besides the sweet sound of alliteration, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they. I have a real answer to this question, but let me tell you that I so many times really had to break it down for people and tell them specifically whether I was referring to Columbia, South Carolina, the capital of the state spelled with a U where the state archives are, 
or if I was referring to Colombia with an O, the country where Cartagena is, uh, that there were two important Colombias as, <laughs> uh, as part of that project was, was not something I thought about at the outset, but it got very confusing in conversation and in, in, in grant applications. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but more, more to the more to the point, uh, you know, some of the considerations for choosing these cities were conceptual and then others were, were purely practical. Uh, so, you know, I really I knew I wanted to do a comparative project of free people of color. Um, and so I knew I was thankfully guided towards just focusing on two cities and not more than that. Um, and so I knew I wanted two cities that were going to make for the most interesting comparisons. Um, so I, I thought about some other places, but ultimately decided against them. Um, you know, so I didn't choose New Orleans, for example, for kind of for two reasons. One is that I speak Spanish and not French. So just a purely practical consideration. Um, but two, I think New Orleans, you know, I knew I wanted to choose a U.S. city as one of my two cities. And I think New Orleans gets explained away by so many U.S. historians as this unique case that's not really comparable to the rest of the country. Uh, and mm -hmm. too often, it just seemed to me like that is gloss. It was glossing over some really important parallels that are evident across the Americas. So I knew I wanted to choose something other than New Orleans, um, and Charleston seemed like a good candidate. Um, and in terms of choosing a second city, you know, I don't. I speak Spanish and not Portuguese either. Uh, so choosing a city in Brazil was out, um, and I knew I was going to. So I knew I was going to choose something in British North America and in Spanish America. Um, and that I could draw on secondary literature to talk about lots of other places, but I, I really needed to choose two cities that I could spend, uh, you know, really dig deep into the archives um, and have the the facility with language in order to be able to do that. And and Cartagena and Charleston just really kind of started jumping off the map to me. Um, both cities are port cities. They were both really critically important to the African slave trade for their respective continents, albeit in different centuries. Um, and by the 18th and 19th century, both cities were home to black majorities. You have a free black majority in Cartagena and an enslaved black majority in Charleston. Um, both cities are mainland cities, but they're really intimately connected with the Caribbean and the wider Atlantic world, which I felt like was an important part of the story as well. Um, and then in some ways, the, the two of them are really kind of the far margins of the greater Caribbean world, which I felt like made for an interesting comparison. Um, and then to me, it, at least in the English language literature, it felt like Colombia had, had kind of gotten short shrift, right? Like it's the, the fourth largest population of African descended people in the hemisphere, um, but it doesn't get nearly the kind of coverage in the historiography that places Brazil and Cuba get. Um, and so that, that made Cartagena interesting to me as well. Um, you know, there are lots and lots of differences between those two cities, but I felt like that made, to me, that made the project more interesting, um, even if it at times made it a little bit more difficult. Um, you know, figuring out when and in what ways those differences between the two cities actually affected the lived experiences of African descended people was a, a huge part of what I hoped the project was going to achieve. Um, and so I just wanted to make sure that the two cities had enough in common to make the comparisons between the two meaningful. And you definitely made them, you know, jump really jump off the page uh, for me. So, so I definitely think that you uh, ultimately accomplished that Thank part. You. Yeah, for, for sure. And um, and and actually, you're, you know, you know, this is great. So, you know, you're we're moving forward in these questions. And so, um, it actually gives a great segue to just looking at the overall project. And, and let, let, let's talk a little bit about challenges here. So what were the biggest challenges you faced 
with this actual book project? Yeah, you know, I, I, I said earlier that like one of the you know kind of unfulfilled promises of, of Atlantic world history is that there aren't more comparative projects, explicitly comparative projects. Um, and, you know, when I started the project, I was wondering why more historians didn't take on big comparative projects like this. Um, and it turns out the answer is that because it's really hard. <laughs> um, so I was uh, I was very fortunate to to have gotten some really good research support uh, from my university and my department um, to spend to spend six months researching in Colombia, um, time in, in Bogota and in Cartagena. Uh, and spent several weeks researching in Spain as well, uh, but working in archives in two different languages um, and at institutions that are on on three continents was was a logistical challenge uh, to you know put it mildly. Um, but but there are a lot mm -hmm. of other challenges, uh, a lot of other challenges as well. You know, one of the big ones is just how it was all going to come together on the page. Um, you know, so for example, just thinking about how how to make the chronology line up that I could tell the story in a way that made sense. You know, sometimes I would see the same thing happening, but it was happening in two places at, at slightly different times. And so how to make that line up in in the narrative, you know, I had had to decide how I was going to talk about that in the book. Um, and so ultimately what I decided to do with the book was to, to structure it thematically uh, rather than chronologically, because I I felt like I wanted to compare how these concepts operated in different geographical contexts. Um, and, and that was more a more important consideration than comparing exactly what was happening at the exact same time in the two cities. Um, so the, the way I, I tried to approach it was as much as I could to, to build a really detailed portrait of daily life in each of these two cities, and then to compare those two portraits rather than try to find one-to-one -one parallels for every piece of evidence that, that I was finding, if, if that makes sense. Um, and then uh, another one of the, the challenges was, you know, trying to compare different document streams. Um, and so I, I ended up relying a lot more on, on quantitative methods and on data than I ever thought I was going to at, at the outset. Um, you know, doing, doing that really helped me make the most of these areas where I did have archival sources that could be directly compared, like census records or baptismal records. Um, you know, I, I think of myself as, as a social historian, not as some, you know, as a quantitative person or as a, you know, a data scientist or anything like that. But for this project, you know, I transcribed hundreds and hundreds of pages of manuscript census records into spreadsheets so that I could make some meaningful comparisons between things like occupational patterns and residential patterns, for example. Um, or, you know, to look at baptismal records, since I had baptismal records for both places, I knew I wanted to make a lot of those. Um, and so I was able to use social network analysis to try to sort of map the relationships among parishioners in these two very different, different churches. Um, you know, so it was a challenge learning to do some of these new things. Uh, but, but doing that, I think, helped me kind of take maximum advantage of the sources that I did have that I thought could be compared directly from one city to the other. Social network analysis. Now you're starting to sound a lot like that that gentleman. Hmm, Tacky's Revolt. What's that guy named? <laughs> Vincent Brown. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That mapping. Okay. I see it. Um, is that that's that's exactly what I thought about when when you when you said that. Um, and I think um, you know, and this actually leads greatly to the next question. But uh, I, I just think a lot about how scholars right because you said that you're not a like a data scientist kind of a social scientist kind of kind of scholar but it's like you have to like 
you know, lean on some of those methods for, for, you know, each, each project Mm -hmm. has its own set of needs. Right. And so you hope that you have the skills or you can, you know, uh, acquire the skills over the time to, to, to meet the challenges that your project uh, uh, brings to, to, to the, to bear. But it also makes me think a lot about, right. It was this your dissertation. Like was, was this, what was uh, Black Freedom in the Age of Slavery built on your actual uh, doctoral dissertation? Yeah, so it was, and 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 I'll say first that you know the the process of learning some of, to do some of that quantitative stuff and getting really good at Excel is probably some of the most the the best stuff that I learned in graduate school when it came to getting a job later on. Um, so that that not only helped the scholarship, but it, it helped uh, helped my professional life uh, in other ways too. Um, but but the book is based on on my dissertation, um, and it was you know it was an interesting experience tr- uh, translating that or um, you know revising that to to become a book. Um, you know, so the the first thing that I did after I after my dissertation defense was I put this project on a shelf and I I literally did not touch it for about eighteen months. Uh, I was, wow. I was teaching for a, I wow. was teaching for a semester. I, I got a job in public history. I moved to Nashville. Uh, I was plenty busy, um, but I, I just needed time away from the project. You know, you get by the time you finish a dissertation, you're so close to it. Um, you know, it's hard to, you know, hard to really take the, uh, you know, the recommendations that you get from from people on your committee or from colleagues about how it could be improved. Um, it was just hard for me to uh, to make sense of those recommendations right away. Um, so I just didn't touch it for, you know, for about a year and a half. Um, and then I came back to it in, in 2018. And taking that time away from it really gave me some fresh perspective on what was working with the dissertation and what wasn't and what kind of changes I needed to needed to make in order to make this, um, you know, to turn this into a book. Uh, but that time away from the project really helped me identify the things that needed to be improved. And thankfully, some of the things I came back and was like, you know, actually, this is pretty, I, I, I like this still. Um, I, I still think that this is good or that this holds water. Um, and so, so that helped too. Um, but I had, uh, while I was still in graduate school, I had connected with the editors of the Carolina Low Country and Atlantic World Series at uh, University of South Carolina Press. Um, and they were really the perfect fit for the project because of the nature of that series. And so that was the only place that I sent my book proposal, um, you know, and they, they were great to work with. They, uh, you know, took on the challenge of sending it out to uh, the right peer reviewers and enough peer reviewers to have expertise on all the different areas that, that the book touches on. Um, but I, you know, for the most part, I let those peer review reports and the guidance from the editors, both um, at the press and the editors of the series, you know, I let that guide where my, my focus was going to be in terms of uh, the major revisions that I made for the project. Um, but, you know, the revising, working on any book is kind of strange where there's these, these periods where, you know, you're waiting for peer review reports or you're waiting for, you know, copy edits or something like that. And there's, so there's months where, or weeks at least, where you're, you're not doing that much. And then there were, there were months when I was, you know, waking up at four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning every day to try to get two hours of scholarly work in before I went to my actual job. Um, so I'll just say that if you're trying to work on a book outside of a academia or outside of a tenure track job or with a small child at home, that it, it is possible. But for me, making those revisions and, and getting the book out meant expanding how many hours of the day I was willing to consider work hours, basically. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it? 
a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Man, that, that, that's, that's something. That, that is something. So um, it, it's always great to learn about what the possible is in terms of what the work that we're doing and, you know, how does it translate, right? How do we, how are we able to produce the work? And also, like we also talked about before, each project has its own set of challenges. Mm-hmm. So that also means that, you know, particular times at which you produce the work also create particular set of challenges too. And so um, it's good to learn about, um, you know, your ability to, to navigate, right? And, and so that's all that in, in all of the myriad of ways of, of navigation, that's ultimately what you did. And so um, I'm actually going to uh, move up in the order um, that I set out um, since we're talking about writing and oh, it's one of my favorite subjects. Oh, my gosh. You know, the listeners know. Um, can you actually describe what your writing process for this particular book actually was? And also, what is your writing process like now? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm with you. I could talk about process all day, um, but but I'll try to keep this keep this short. Um, so for me, the most important part of of writing was figuring out when you do your best work, and then making sure that I prioritize uh, you know prioritize that time for research and writing. So for me, I know I work best first thing in the morning. So I did everything I could to make that my most productive time. So like I was saying, once I I had a baby at home or once I started my job, I knew that I wasn't going to get work done after work or in the evening. Um, I had to get it done in the morning. And so that meant meant waking up early. Um, But when when I was at a point when I was when I was only writing, uh, like when I was doing my dissertation, um, you know, the other not only would I do things first thing in the morning, but I think I tried to recognize that there's only so many hours in a day that you can actually devote to scholarly work. Um, you know, so I would wake up right from about, you know, seven in the morning to about noon and then I'd be done for the day. Um, you know, I would always try to leave some low hanging fruit for the next day. So if I was, you know, I would, I would start the next paragraph or I would leave some idea where I knew I could sit down the next day and easily write those first couple sentences to get things rolling. Um, but, you know, I would put in four or five or six hours of kind of heavy intellectual work and then I'd pack it in for the day. Uh, you know, I'd spend the rest of the day, I'd exercise, I'd make lunch, I'd answer emails, do administrative stuff, whatever. Um, but you just I always feel like you just can't operate at your full brain capacity all day long. It's not possible. And so I just don't I don't try to do that. Um, I try to schedule my day to really maximize those those uh, those work hours where I, I am trying to do that kind of intellectual scholarly work. And then I cut it off and have a time where I'm not trying to do that. You know, I don't think you're accomplishing anything by sitting at the computer for 12 hours a day, trying to, you know, trying to get things done. There's kind of diminishing returns there. Um, I'll, I'll also say that recently there have been two books by the, the author and computer scientist Cal Newport that have really changed how I think about my writing process. Um, so the first is called Deep Work. 
And, and his second mm -hmm. more recent book is called Digital Minimalism. And, and the two books have really made me think a lot about what role technology should be playing in my life if I want to devote my life to this kind of intellectual work. Um, things like multitasking and, and email and social media, all that stuff, they have real costs beyond the stuff that we normally think about, um, especially as it relates to productivity on you know, knowledge work. Um, you know, and that, that includes the time, you know, thinking about the role of technology includes the time when you're not writing too, right? Like recognizing that your brain, in order to do its best work, your brain needs space and it needs, you know, some time alone and it needs freedom from outside thoughts uh, and ideas, like so that it can start working out solutions to all these problems you've been having with your, you know, how to structure that chapter or what that document re means or how this part fits in um, and your, your brain or, our brains, and I have definitely recognized this in myself, just can't do that work if you're constantly bombarding it with like your Twitter feed or something. Um, and so I'm trying to more and more start with, uh, you know, what are the things that I really want to accomplish? What are the things I really value? And then figuring out what technology and tools are going to help me get there and how and when I should be using them. And anything that's outside of that, I can lose and not feel bad about it because it's not helping me get where I want to get. Um, you know, the, the other thing for me has always been that with writing that it, it ebbs and flows, man. I mean, there would be weeks at a time, weeks at a time where, where I just didn't have it, you know, and forcing yourself, forcing myself to sit there at the computer mm -hmm. wasn't, was, mm -hmm. wasn't helping. Um, you know, so I'd always try for a little bit, but if I didn't have it that day or I didn't have it that week, you know, I'd cut myself some slack and I'd, I'd get other things done knowing that, you know, it, it's going to it's gonna come back, that there are ebbs and then there are flows, um, and that there are other weeks where the writing just flows, and you can hammer out, you know, 2,000 words a day for days in a row or weeks in a row. Um, and even if you're not actively writing, you're, you know, usually your brain is, is still working at that time. Um, and then the, the last thing I'll say, because this is going on too long already, but um, I, I learned <laughs> we're that... Good, we're good. Yeah, you you can absolutely get out of shape as a writer. Um, that was a lesson I learned when I when I came back to the project after taking taking so much time off. Is that you know I, I felt out of shape. I used to be able to spend a couple hours you know sitting and doing this kind of work, and now I'm you know my brain's getting tired after a couple of minutes of it. Um, and so that was you know kind of getting back into writing shape and um, you know in, in shape for scholarship was was a challenge at the beginning too. And so now I, I I'm trying to sort of stay at a baseline level of writing shape uh, going forward now. Scholar shape. I like it. You didn't say that, but that's what I got. Got to get yourself in scholar shape. I like it. I like got it. You. And uh, I'm going to have to go after this interview and check if that is actually copywritten because I might have to put that on the shirt <laughs> one day. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I like it. Yeah, me, me, me too. <laughs> me too. Um, so, so this actually then goes into, you know, returning back, actually back to the book um, after our jaunt thinking about concepts and writing, um, you know, your, your book does, does a lot of different things, but, but one of the parts that I thought was interesting comes into this question. What role to varying degrees did manumission play in both societies? Was gaining manumission easier in one cow, uh, one locale rather versus the other. Yeah, that's a, a great question. Um, so, manumission, the the ability to to legally gain freedom from slavery, is certainly easier to access in Cartagena than in Charleston. 
slavery just was not as important to the local economy or to white social standing in Cartagena uh, as it was in Charleston, especially as the epicenter of slavery in Colombia moves kind of to the south and west over the course of the 18th century. Um, but the nature of, of urban life in the Americas meant that you see some really interesting parallels uh, when you look at manumission across, uh, you know, across these different cities. Um, and that's something that really started to become, become clear as I was researching the book. Um, so, for example, self-purchase is one of the most common ways that enslaved people gain their freedom in both Cartagena and in Charleston. Right. In both places, you have enslaved Africans and African descended people hiring out their own time um, and often able to keep at least a portion of the earnings uh, that they made uh, through hiring out their work. Um, and some of them were able to use that money and save it over years and years and use that money to purchase their own freedom. Uh, so in Spanish America, the ability of enslaved people to purchase themselves is legally recognized in ways that it was not in South Carolina or anywhere else in the United States. Uh, but it still happens really frequently in both places. And that was really interesting to me. Um, and the same held true for free or enslaved people of African descent purchasing the freedom of their family members. Uh, the, the other interesting component to manumission uh, when you start making these comparisons between places is that white people try to control the process at every turn, uh, both in Cartagena and in Charleston. Uh, so generally speaking, as the 19th century wore on, it got more difficult for an enslaved person to gain their freedom in Charleston, and it got easier in Colombia. Uh, but white authorities in Colombia are constantly delaying the abolition of slavery. They're slowing the emancipation of slaves by uh, these local manumission boards. Uh, they're looking to the British for examples of apprenticeship to, in their minds, uh, to kind of ease the transition from slavery to freedom. Um, and you, you, things kind of go uh, the opposite way in Charleston. They get more restricted as the 19th century wears on. But likewise, you have white authorities kind of slowly ending all paths to freedom for enslaved people. Uh, so they outlaw manumission outright. Uh, they outlaw sales and trusts. They demand that free black people leave the state in South Carolina. Uh, and enslaved people in, in Charleston especially just demonstrate this incredible creativity to find ways around those laws. Uh, but by the 1840s in Charleston, it's all but impossible to legally gain your freedom in South Carolina. Um, so even though the ability to gain freedom kind of trended in different directions in the two places, white supremacy and doubts about the ability of African descended people to survive in freedom were foundational to white racial ideology in both places. Uh, so the way that I describe it in the book is that in Cartagena, Whites see manumission as a threat to social order. They worry that in freedom, black people are going to fall into lives of vice, of idleness, of crime, uh, and they're going to be bad citizens, right? Uh, they worry about the threat to social order. But in Charleston, whites see manumission as a threat to the social order. The, this idea that black people would always be subjugated to white people through the institution of slavery. But undergirding both of those fears is this shared ideology of white supremacy that people of African descent in both cities had to work against. And that, to me, that discussion and negotiation, because I, I think about this as well. I interviewed um, Dr. Erica Edwards, whose amazing book, Hiding in Plain Sight, discussed this um, you know, manumission process and 
in uh um in Cotoba and in um in Argentina. And so mm-hmm. like just just thinking about this process of manumission and negotiation um and and how uh free and enslaved folks negotiated freedom and how they knew the laws and such like that. So I think that um your your book provides a lot of us who are at this you know Atlantic world and depending on where you are in Colombia Pacific world um mm-hmm. negotiation I think is very interesting um and, and, yeah, it, it, yeah it's always fascinating to me how much of the rest of the the state the rest of the country the rest of the Atlantic world enslaved and free black people know about, especially when you're looking at port cities, that parts of those negotiations for freedom, for increased autonomy, for rights and privileges, that you see all the time uh, free black people and enslaved people pointing to precedent in Cuba or pointing to precedent in another another state in the U.S. or calling on examples of, of these different uh, how things are operating in different places in order to help uh, help bolster their own claims. Um, that's something I especially saw with free people of color in Cartagena talking about other port cities uh, and other vice royalties in Spanish America. Yeah. Like how, like, and and this is something that I'm just interested about just generally speaking, right. Thinking about the intellectual histories of the enslaved and thinking about how not only memories, but actual histories is right. Memory. And obviously we know memory and history, right. As a, as a public historian par excellence, you know, you know this, right, about the differences between um, history and memory. But in the concepts of like how we think about how the enslaved thought. Right. I think both of those are very important. And so th- it's, it's it's just an interesting way to think about manumission as a process of history writing. Right. Of, of, of history. Uh, you know, you, you're you're using prior histories to talk about the world that you want to you know, then go into as a free person. Um, so, so that is something that I didn't think about in while reading your book, but during the conversation we're having now, Lord have mercy. The, 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 yeah, the synapse, they're just going crazy right now. Like, wow. Yeah. And you know, I, that's something I talk about uh, a lot in, uh, in the second chapter of my book, which looks at sort of the Haitian revolution and its legacy in these two cities. Um, so not only do you see, the free people of color and enslaved people in both places, you know, they're intimately aware of what's happening in, in Saint-Domingue as, as the Haitian Revolution is transpiring. You have refugees, uh, white refugees from Saint-Domingue kind of flooding into Charleston all through the you know, 1790s. Um, but not only do you have that happening, but enslaved people and free black people continue to call on the example of Haiti of Haiti into the 1810s, 1820s, 1830s in both cities that, um, you know, this isn't something that they're only cognizant of while it's happening. Um, you know, they know how the history of the country develops and they're still calling on that as, as an inspiration in, uh, in these later decades. Um, and the fact that they have this sort of continued engagement with, uh, with the Haitian revolution and with the country of Haiti, um, which is really fascinating. To exactly. Exactly. And, and it's just like, you know, th- th- this this actual concept of, um, you know, the the role of memory and the role of history in the lives of the enslaved, about how the enslaved are acculturated, right, in in the history of not only the, the location that they're living in, but also, you know, these wider worlds, right? And it also brings up, you know, you, um, 
you 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 cite a, a number of different times the work of of the great Julius Scott, right? Mm-hmm. And so this wasn't on our list of questions, but if if you if you can, um, if you can uh, uh, let let me go a little bit uh, deeper in this conversation here, um, can you talk about the role of the common wind, right, as a book and as a concept in 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 this work too? Yeah, I mean, reading reading that. Uh, reading the common wind was, you know, was really a, a game changer for me. Um, and that, you know, completely just transformed the way that I thought about how the Haitian revolution was, was operating in these two cities. Um, and really made me think about how, you know, find things, especially in newspapers uh, that I maybe wouldn't have, um, you know, wouldn't have made as much of if I hadn't read, um, hadn't read that book. Um, or, you know, or read that, that dissertation. Um, and so like in Charleston, you see all, you know, all through the 1790s, uh, you see these reports in the newspaper that are, you know, about ships coming in, uh, or I guess I should say before the 1790s, throughout the 1770s, 1780s, there's just this constant flood of, uh, you know, of ships coming in from San Domingue, um, you know, selling, selling coffee, selling sugar, uh, selling enslaved people. Uh, you have uh, this, you know, regular, uh, regular commercial traffic between Charleston and San Domingue. And so by the time you get to the 1790s, that continues for the most part. Uh, and then you also have reports about what's happening on that island that are being published in the newspaper. Um, and you have refuge, white refugees who are fleeing San Domingue and coming into Charleston and calls from white Charlestonians asking to, uh, you know, that they need to raise money to help support these, um, you know, what they call these, you know, poor, distressed refugees uh, from San Domingue. Um, and then they also seem, but they seem sort of willfully ignorant of the fact that people of African descent, that enslaved people, that free people of color are are hearing this news too, that they, you know, even if they can't read it, don't or can't read it in the newspaper, they're hearing it through uh, you know, people of African descent who are working on the ships and they're transferring the message to people who are working in and around the port and that it's getting out really quickly to, uh, you know, to people throughout the, the greater Charleston area. And so that they are are hearing these same reports and obviously taking very different lessons from them. Um, and so you have at the same time these reports showing up in the newspaper and then white white Charlestonians writing to the governor kind of mystified that they're uh, seeing this, uh, you know, that they're hearing rumors about, about insurrection in 1793 and 1797. Um, and you have something similar happening in, in Cartagena where you have, uh, you have, you know, prisoners being transferred from, uh, you know, Spanish parts of the island to other, other parts of Spanish America. And they're being, you know, concerned about uh, ideas spreading in these communities. Um, and so it was, a you know uh, certainly a chapter that I would not have been able to write without uh, without having having read the Common Wind and it just made me see every one of those mentions of uh, of San Domingue of Haiti in a newspaper or in a piece of correspondence as an example of this is a time where people of African descent are are hearing that message too and are you know kind of internalizing what that means for them. Absolutely, absolutely. Hashtag this is a Julius Scott Stan account. You know, using, using <laughs> you know, th- this is definitely a hashtag. This is a Julius Scott and the Common Wind Stan account at all times. Um, so, so I'm glad that I could get that on wax too, um, because, because you know, you know, it, it's it's hard. Right? It should it, it should be illegal. It should be illegal. You know, <laughs> to, to to discuss you know uh, uh, this period without 
um, you know, at least giving a, a nudge to, uh, to, to, to brother Julius. Um, and so Absolutely. obviously you did even more than that. You went well above the call of duty, um, <laughs> to stay in the game. Um, and so, uh, with that too, right. And, and so just thinking, right, because a lot of the listeners, um, really myself, if this was even a year ago, um, might not fully understand the way race and race making worked in both um, Cartagena and 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 even Charleston to a certain degree, because you know Charleston and New Orleans were very much you know you, you showed in your work that the Lower South provided a different opportunity for for labor that even the Upper South and even the Urban North didn't even provide. Um, so it makes me think a lot about the role of race. Um, and so to the question is, how did race operate differently um, in Cartagena and Charleston? And what do those differences mean for freedom opportunities for people of African descent? Yeah. So in, in some ways, this is what the entire book is about, right? So if you want the long answer to this, you uh, should read the book because that is, <laughs> you know, this is one of the, the huge, you know, gui- guiding questions for the book. Um, but the, the the simplest answer, I think, is that, um, you know, in Charleston, there's this uh, inextricable link between blackness and slavery that free people of color had to contend with in a way that uh, people of African descent in Cartagena just did not. Um, I think second, uh, I would say that free people of African descent in Cartagena, uh, you know, prior to sort of the mid 19th century, they could appeal to to the Spanish crown to recognize or grant them rights and distinctions and privileges. Um, and, and free black people use that opportunity uh, to uh, you know appeal to an authority that was distant from daily life in their city uh, and use that to their advantage in ways that you know, free black people in Charleston uh, just just couldn't. Uh, so, for example, free people of African descent in Cartagena could join the voluntary militia, uh, and that afforded not only a degree of social distinction, but it conferred these tangible benefits too, like the ability to be, you know, tried for transgressions by a, a you know, a special military tribunal that might offer them greater leniency. And so, those are kinds of opportunities that are available in in Cartagena that that aren't available in Charleston, by and large, because you know you don't have this this link. Uh, the same kind of link between blackness and slavery in in Cartagena as you do in Charleston. Um, but but the biggest thing that I found in my research is that you know there were what I see anyway as as two major parallels that had a had a huge impact on daily life for free people of African descent. Um, first, I would say that e- even though slavery was a lot more important in Charleston than in Cartagena. White's assumptions about the inferiority of African descended people was absolutely present in both places and, you know, and influenced in huge ways the kinds of opportunities and challenges that were available uh, available for free and enslaved black people. Um, and second, I would say that, you know, free people of African descent used whatever opportunities that were available to them to claim privileges that weren't typically afforded to African descended people. Uh, in order to improve their own lives and improve the lives of their loved ones. Um, you know, they were, I see time and again that, uh, you know, free people of African descent are, you know, just unwilling to accept only what is, you know, given to them uh, or only what is, uh, you know, said is declared to be acceptable by law. You know, they're constantly pushing those boundaries um, in order to try to try to improve their lives. Um, so even though the specific opportunities that they might encounter would differ from place to place, 
uh, free black people in both Cartagena and in Charleston are confronting anti-black racism in their daily lives, right? They find these inconsistencies in how the logic of white supremacy operated, uh, and they push them as, as far as they could go uh, to improve their fortunes. Um, and I think by, by exposing those cracks in the, the foundation of white supremacy, you know, by, by proving just through living their lives that African descended people could survive and thrive as free people, free people of African descent undermined white supremacy every day. And I think that that's a, a contribution that can't be overlooked. Amen to that. Amen to that. And, and, you know, especially, um, you know, thinking about like the Tannenbaum thesis about, you know, the differences between, you know, slavery and in, in, in Latin America versus, you know, in, in, in North America and the North American mainland, for instance. And so, um, you know, you definitely provided a good uh, a good primer for, for, for our listeners. Um, because, hey, we, we know folks are going to buy the book. We know that, you know, mm-hmm. Amazon or, you know, uh, USC's uh, uh, or the, the real USC, you know, shouts out to South Carolina. You know, that's where <laughs> the fam is from. Um, not not the one on the on the left coast, the wrong coast. But um, <laughs> don't don't want no don't know don't want no smoke. Don't don't want no wars over here. But um, <laughs> but you know, I, I ref for South Carolina hard. Um, and so with w- with your work, it makes me think just a lot about the role um of associational life, right? Association uh, associational um in in intellectual life are major facets of your book. Right. So, so how did people of African descent in these two varying urban centers, right, with black majorities in Cartagena and Charleston, develop fairly robust associational and also intellectual lives? Because I think that that was an important, very interesting part um, about your book that it maybe might surprise some, some of our listeners. Yeah. So that that was a really, you know, I think that might have been the, the first chapter that I wrote. Um, you know, that was some of the stuff that really just jumped off the page to me. Um, and so when you think about these, you know, these voluntary associations, this associational and intellectual life, um, you know, I think there was strength in numbers in some ways that uh, in both cities, you have free black people using these associational ties uh, to these various voluntary societies uh, to improve their reputations and improve their social standing. Um, you know, across the Americas, people of African descent are operating these kinds of voluntary associations uh, that, that take a, a lot of different forms, but uh, usually are offering some kind of mutual aid and support, right? So on the one hand, there's this practical dynamic to it, where these mutual aid societies are offering financial assistance for free Black people when times were tough, uh, which is pretty often. Uh, they provided, uh, provided financial assistance for burials and funerals, which is one of the most common functions that they have. Um, that you know they uh, these mutual aid societies often maintain their own cemeteries too, which is really important at a time when a lot of churches wouldn't uh, allow black people to be buried in the church cemetery. Um, but in addition to those sorts of uh, those practical supports, they also serve this really important cultural function. Um, you know, they these mutual aid societies are um, you know are opportunities for first second, third generation people of African descent in the Americas to maintain and to evolve cultural traditions that they had inherited from their ancestors, you know, whether mourning practice, uh, music, food, clothing, or anything else. Um, so they have, they have both of these, these practical and cultural functions, and that's something you see across the Americas, um, you know, not, not just in, in Spanish America. 
Um, but then I think these these kinds of voluntary associations also let free black people prove that they could and wanted to maintain the same types of societies and the same types of fraternal bonds that their white counterparts in society did. Um, so in Charleston, you have something called the, the Cleonian Debating Society. Um, and it was, you know, this group of elite free men of color who would get together and debate these topics on you know, politics and religion and uh, literature and world affairs. And, um, you know, and there were, you know, there was also a white debating society and they were sort of, you know, in, in their structure, they were they were modeled off of that in some ways. Um, there are lots of different mutual aid societies across Charleston that serve different segments of the free back, black population. Um, there are a lot of kind of really fascinating complexional differences that they try to maintain between these different societies. Um, but uh, and then in, in Cartagena, you have you know not only mutual aid societies, but you have the voluntary militia as well, which is only open to you know certain kinds of people. It's only open to people with a certain uh, financial standing, a certain social standing. Um, and so when free black people join these kinds of associations, they could prove to their neighbors, to other members of their community that they they held and could live certain kinds of values, things like thrift and industry and sobriety. And by doing that, they're able to help reshape what those values meant in those communities as well. And and in that, you know, you you talk a lot about, you know, the 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 ways that folks, you know, a lot of free black folks uh kind of adapted uh, and or adopted, you know, what the ruling and I, and I you say ruling intentionally um, uh, ruling understanding of, you know, how do you comport yourself effectively? Um, but I also think about, you know, were there, um, free, uh, women of color auxiliaries of these organizations or were these mostly, um, free male of free black men of color or, or, or free men of color rather, uh, specific that you found in, in both places? Yeah, so the the people that I'm mostly writing about, especially when it comes to these associational ties, are are free men of color. Um, that there just weren't you know weren't the same kinds of uh, of associational opportunities for free women of color as there were for free men of color. Um, in Cartagena, with some of the um, the cabildos de nación, um, they you do have you know they seem to maintain houses in Cartagena, and you have women that are listed in them, but it's not totally clear what that, um, what the function was, um, whether that meant that they were leaders in, in that cabildo or whether that meant that they were sort of receiving charity um, by, by being listed as part of the cabildo house. Um, and so there were definitely more opportunities for this kind of, you know, for building, boosting one's social standing for free men of color than there were for free women of color. Um, and that's part of why um, I also wrote uh, you know, wrote some about uh, baptismal sponsorship. Because that seemed to be something, an area that free women of color were more active than free men of color. And part of what um, what I argue in the book is that one of the reasons that that they're more active is um, because they didn't have these other t- these other opportunities um, to boost their their social profile with their neighbors and community members. And so church service um, and taking on these sort of formal roles uh, within their religious community was an opportunity to do that. And yeah, thank you for that, because, you know, as a graduate student who's um, getting ready to talk with their advisor about, um, you know, dissertation prospectus and such. And so I'm in that I'm I'm transitioning for a little while out of uh, exam mode and comms mode to just like, okay, 
Now I gotta mm-hmm. now I gotta get back to writing again and 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 get back yep. in, in 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 that which you know based upon your one of your early answers, it's not exactly the easiest thing to do. But I'm not taking 18 months uh, difference <laughs> <laughs> between it, so uh, you know a l- little bit of a difference, right? Yeah, that's for that's for after you're done. You can take some big time off. Right, right. I'm still still in the belly of the beast, still in the belly of the beast. Um, and so, you know, transitioning out of the book and kind of just looking more in, into the personal, into the more um, autobiographical here, um, what does it mean for you to be a scholar of race and slavery in the 18th and 19th century urban Americas? What does that mean to you? Yeah, that's that's a great question. And it, it's one I've certainly been been thinking a lot about recently as I've been preparing, finalizing the book and preparing for the book to come out. I mean, for me, you know, if, if the last several months and, and last few years have, have shown us anything, it's that racism is still so woven into the fabric of our society um, and, and sometimes in ways that's difficult to see, right? Um, and so I, when I think about why I do this kind of scholarship, um, you know, I do it because I, I care about people and I, I care about their lives. Um, I care about my community, whether it's my, my local community and the national community or the international community, um, and addressing these persistent problems of inequality and injustice means confronting the history of race. That, that's just unavoidable. And I, you know, so I want to help people better understand how race operated in the past so they can have a better perspective on how it's still with us today and how it's still affecting, um, you know, these, these issues of inequality and injustice. In both Colombia and the United States, you have this deep systemic racial inequality. Um, and I think it can only be addressed with a, a really forthright understanding of how those racial inequalities came to be. Um, and so I think we, we need to understand race if we're going to understand uh, present day injustice and inequality. Um, and understanding how race developed and operated, operated over time, to me, I think requires looking at it from an international perspective. Um, I think there, there's a lot to be gained by seeing how this operated in different geographic contexts. Um, and I hope that, you know, pushes us a little bit farther towards, uh, you know, better understanding how the present, how present challenges came to be uh, and hopefully towards, uh, you know, towards addressing them. Yeah. And, and especially in this, in this moment, you know, how are scholars marshalling their, their work into better understandings of history and culture and, and, and for the betterment of the world? Um, because in Colombia and, and also in the United States and, and, and the broader world, we face a lot of different challenges and history can be, um, you know, uh, aid to, to, to society, um, in a way that is not a 1776 commission or, Mm -hmm. uh, something, you know, in, in that vein. Um, and so, so it's good to hear about, you know, your role and also, you know, to, to, to build on that, actually, we talk about public history a lot on and offline. So as an addition, can you talk to us about what it means for you to be a, like a public historian, not even like, but a public historian rather, what does that role mean to you? And also, what does it mean to you to be a public historian in this particular moment that we find ourselves in history? 
Yeah, that's a, that's a great question too. You know, I have I didn't expect to end up in a career in public history when I when I started graduate school, um, but I'm very very happy with where I've ended up, and it's really kind of transformed the way I think about scholarly work and and why it's important. Um, you know, I think I I really want my work to help not only advance scholarship and help us you know learn new things about the past, uh, but really want to you know, help members of the public better understand the past and why it matters today. Um, you know, I want to learn from members of the public about their perspectives on things um, and to, to, you know, be able to integrate those ideas and those attitudes into my own work as well. You know, I think there are still, and, and some of the research that I'm, I'm doing as, you know, as part of my role at the American Association for State and Local History just shows how much the public still doesn't understand what what history is and why it's valuable um you know they the so much so much of the public still thinks of it as driven by by individuals they still think of it as facts and dates um and so i think we you know we still have a long way to go and and a lot of um you know a, a lot we can do as as scholars to uh you know communicate our work more effectively so that it can have the kind of impact i think we all hope our scholarship will have on on public audiences um, you know, and I think the, you know, I think there's real opportunities, especially between now and the nation's 250th anniversary in 2026. You know, I think there's real opportunities to help reintroduce scholarship to, to the public and to reintroduce it to them in new ways. You know, I think some, you know, the sort of the 1776 commission and things like that and some of the discussions over monuments have shown that there's, there's a segment of society that just views that views uh, inclusive history and a sh and shared national history as just completely mutually exclusive categories, right? That though that you cannot have exclusive inclusive history and a shared national history, that they can't be one and the same. Um, and they see the only way to get that sort of shared national narrative is to go back in time to to an earlier, less inclusive vision of the past. And I just refuse to believe that that's true. You know, I think we can build a, a more inclusive vision of the past, one that is more, um, you know, more, uh, more attuned to uh, to recent scholarship that's that's more relevant to people's lives and to the challenges that they're facing. Um, and I think that's something that you know that that scholars should should want to be a part of, and that that's certainly something that I'm trying to do both through my through my scholarship and 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 through my work in public history. From one public historian to the other. Thank you for the work that you do. I appreciate you. Yeah, no, because it, it's, it's so important because um, history is, you know, what really helps us better understand the world and um, provides, you know, opportunities for people to um, understand the built environment, right? Because monuments are forms of the built environment and to understand why um, they need to be contested at, at every, uh, at every juncture. And so I'm definitely glad to, to learn more about your perspective on, on so many, so on so many of these issues. And I'm also glad in, in our final question here to learn your, pers your perspective on this next question. It's one of my favorites. I don't ask it to everybody, but I'm asking it to you. If you could resurrect only one figure from the book to have a five course dinner with, who would you choose? And what questions would you ask them? Yeah, this is one I had, you know, I, I had an answer to immediately. Um, and it's, uh, it's, a, it's a man named Jehu Jones from Charleston. 
Um, and I, I write about him in the book Great a choice. bit. Um, and he's really just a, an absolutely fascinating character to me. Um, so he is, he's born in slavery. Uh, he's trained as, as a tailor while, while he was enslaved and eventually buys his way out of, uh, buys his way out of slavery in, I think, 1797. Um, eventually as, as a tailor or as a tailor, he earns enough money and he buys a building that he operates as a hotel. And it eventually becomes one of the best hotels in the city. Um, he's a member of the Brown Fellowship Society, which is kind of this, which is this like elite voluntary association among free people of color in Charleston. Um, he's, you know, he's married to a woman who is uh, was also from an, an elite free black family in Charleston. Um, and so he, you know, just has this life that, in some ways, is very typical of the story that I was trying to tell about Charleston. Um, and being able to to talk to him about what his experiences were like, how uh, you know how the guests at his hotel treated him and treated his family would would be really fascinating for me. But I also just have so many unanswered questions about him and about his family. Um, so I think sometime in in the 1820s, his wife and daughter leave for New York. Uh, and they uh, later on are asking for permission to be able to return to South Carolina because the state said had, had determined in the interim that it was illegal for free people of color outside of South Carolina to return to the state. Uh, but I don't really know why they left exactly or what their experiences were like in the North. And so to be able to ask him and uh, and ask his uh, his wife, you know, what what her experiences were like in New York and in Charleston and to be able to directly compare those. Uh, would be really fascinating. Um, and then Jehu Jones's son, uh, Jehu Jr., uh, he also leaves Charleston, um, and he sort of uh, got uh, bound up with some um, some folks from the American Colonization Society, and he considers leaving for Liberia. Uh, but then he also asked to come back to Charleston, saying that he was deceived about what conditions were like in Liberia, um, and that he wants to you know to return to the South and to to return to Charleston. Um, and so there are just I just have so many questions about uh, about that family history, about what life for them was like in these different locations um, that I think would, um, you know, he uh, he could be, be the subject of a biography and getting to have a nice long dinner with him would, uh, you know, would, would, would certainly help tell that story. Um, but he, he's a fascinating character, even with what I do know about him. Uh, but there are still so many things that I don't that I would uh, would love to learn more. Yeah, Jehu Jones was definitely one of the more, you know, badass, you know, uh, folks from the book. So I definitely, um, definitely, Hey, I want to know too. I'd love to be a fly on the wall for that conversation, uh, that, that y'all would have. So, um, but, but, you know, that's our final question here. So I just want to tell you, thank you, uh, Dr. Marks for, for coming on to the podcast, new books in African American studies to discuss your first monograph. Like I, I feel, um, I feel, I feel, uh, a privilege to, to, to have had you on the program today. No, it was a, it was an honor to be here. Thank you so much, you know, for for a great conversation. I hope people, you know, have have enjoyed hearing hearing a little bit more about the project. Um, you know, I hope people look look up the book and um, and you know and see if it's for them and 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 hopefully buy it. It's available on Amazon. You can can learn more about it on or about me uh, and the book on on my website at johngmarks.com. Uh, but I you know I appreciate you having me on today. Most definitely. And so hopefully, listeners, you enjoyed uh, listening to my interview with Dr. John Garrison Marks. And thank you, John, once again for chatting with me about his brand new book published this year in 2020 by our friends at the University of South Carolina Press entitled 
Black freedom in the age of slavery, race, status, and identity in the urban Americas. And so if you're interested in more new books in African-American studies content, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you are so inclined and or moved, please rate us and review us wherever you find us in your podcasts. Until next time, y'all, your new books in African-American studies host, Adam McNeil. Over and out.